Welcome to the City Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. As a community of faith, we are passionate about helping people find and follow Jesus. The message for this week is from our current verse-by-verse study from the book of James. In each message, we will see some practical truths for living God's way in situations and circumstances that are often out of our control. As always, we would love to have you join us for a Sunday service sometime here soon in Vancouver. You can find directions, more info, and more sermons on our website at So let's take our Bibles today and let's go to James chapter uh, number five. James chapter number five today as we finish uh, our final uh, message in the book of James as we've been working through it verse by verse. It's good to have the kids in church today. And so that's always an, an added fun part of it, right? And uh, kids, I talked to most of them. I think they all told me they were going to be great today. So that's good. We got it all covered. And uh, it's good to have some guests with us today. Thank you for being here at City Baptist. We're honored you join us. And it's good to have uh, some from out of town as well. Uh, it is a long weekend, so it's always great to have extra people when others are out of town and camping and doing things. Happy September. Man, can you believe it, right? I'm sweating like it's August. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, happy September, but uh, I'm glad to share with you today what the Lord's given to me as we complete our verse-by-verse study of the book of James. Now, the verse-by-verse study that we've been in has been exhaustive, but it has not been exhausting, right? It's been exhaustive. We've hit every single verse. We've talked through every single phrase. Uh, this important book written by the younger brother of Jesus, James himself, who wrote this and uh, left it for us. Now, remember, just a bit of follow-up and review following the resurrection. Now, up until the resurrection, James did not believe that his younger brother or his older brother was the son of God. If you can believe that, and obviously those of you who have siblings, we totally get that. You know, if your brother was like, bro, I'm the son of God, I don't know, I have to see and wait about, you know, see about that. But he did not fully follow Christ until after the resurrection, but at that point he was all in and he saw everything was made true to him, just like for us today. When we understand the truth of the resurrection, it all just comes together for us. And so he began to follow Christ and uh, began to uh, become a leader in that early church in Jerusalem. Eventually, we know from other passages in the book of Acts, he eventually became the pastor and the leader there uh, in Jerusalem, and God used him to make a tremendous impact. And one of the biggest impacts that he had is by writing the book of James to us. We believe that it is the earliest written epistle in all of the New Testament, maybe just 50 years or so after Christ's death and resurrection. So it was all not all that uh, far past. It would have still been fresh in his memory. Obviously, an event like that would have been so fresh in his memory. And he wrote to the believers that were scattered abroad. Verse number one of chapter one tells us to the saints or to the believers that were scattered abroad. And so what had taken place, and I'm going to move quickly this morning, just in, some of you were like, he's talking really fast. I'm going to try to get through our, in my introduction here quickly today. Uh, but just so you kind of remember what had happened is that um, because of uh, the rapid growth of the early church in Jerusalem, it, ga- it garnered a lot of attention, both from the past religious Jews as well as the Romans, and uh, it was not good attention. So persecution came. Uh, you remember the story about Paul and Stephen and others, or Saul at that time as he brought persecution. And so many of those believers in that early church that was growing so fast were scattered all about the known world. And so to James, he was writing to those that had been scattered. It would be like if some tragic event happened to our church and, and this side had to move to uh, 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 Manitoba and, uh, and this side had to move to, uh, I don't know, New Brunswick or something, and, uh, and, and then all over the country, and then, and then, but I was the only one left here. That would be terrible. Well, I mean, I'd be happy to be here in Vancouver, but, you know, it'd be terrible. And so he wrote to them. He wanted to encourage them. They didn't have their leadership. They were kind of on their own. And so he wrote to them and he encouraged them 
uh, through this book. Now, what's so interesting about uh, James is that some people have called it the Proverbs of the New Testament. And the reason is, is because it's just command after command after command. In 108 verses, there are 52 direct commands for Christian living. And, and sometimes I know, I've, I've, I've said this, I think, in our series, sometimes as we've been going through it, it feels like James is just unloading on us a little bit. It feels like he's a little frustrated. It feels like he's just sort of pouring out uh, some thoughts that uh, maybe are bugging him. But the reality is, and what I've come to understand, uh, and, and I believe we'll try to wrap this up a little bit today, what I've come to understand is that James was not upset about anything. He wasn't angry at all. He simply wanted to get in as much information as possible to help the believers grow in their walk with God and have a true, intimate, meaningful relationship with Him. And that's what God desires for us, right? Is to have a deep, intimate, meaningful relationship with Jesus Christ. And that is done and that grows by us understanding who we are, understanding who God is and how those two relationships come together. And so James just is pouring out. And to be honest, the next nine verses is no different. Uh, he just continues to write. You know, I was thinking about it. Most, uh, most of the epistles, you know, uh, the Apostle Paul obviously wrote most of the New Testament, but in most of his epistles, he would end it with something like, grace be to you. You know, he was so kind, you know, grace be to you. Or maybe he would end it. Uh, other letters uh, end with, you know, the saints that are here with me, they salute you and some sort of greeting. James gives no such closure. He goes right to the very end of the scroll where he ran out of room. He didn't even put his name. He just rolls all the way to the very end. He's like, well, I'm out. I guess I'm going to send it. And so that's what he does here is all the way to the very end. He's giving us instruction to point us in the direction that God wants us to go. And so last week as we were in uh, verses 5 through 11, we saw how we need to have patience. Uh, but today, in this final uh, nine verses we're going to look at, particularly the last eight, James, for us, sort of brings it all together, and he deals with one of the most important things, I believe, in the Christian life, and that is, how does a Christian respond to the challenges that life brings your way? How does a Christian respond to difficulties uh, that come along? But before he gets into that, he sort of has a, a verse, um, in verse number 12, I want you to see this. He says this to us as sort of a transitional verse, and, it, and at first glance, it looks like it's totally out of the blue or, or totally at random, but I'm going to connect it into our passage here in just a few minutes. I believe it was for a specific purpose, but he gets back to the importance of our speech. So he kind of, he covers this first of all, and then he's going to move into the next thought. So let's look at verse number 12. He says, but of all, above all things, my brethren, above all things, my brethren, swear not, neither by heaven neither by the earth, neither by any other oath, but let your yea be yea and your nay, nay. Now, immediately, I know what you're thinking. Watch me whip, watch me nay, nay. Uh, I, I'm assuming you, if you laughed, you're one of the 1.6 billion people who've watched that YouTube video. And those of you who have not, you are a blessed person. Uh, that's not what he's saying, okay? The spelling is different, okay? He's saying, let your yes be yes and your no, no. And then he says this lest ye fall into condemnation. Fall into condemnation. Now this verse right here really uh, is an echo from the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus emphasized the importance of being people of our word. People who keep their word, people whose promises actually carry meaning. Now he talks here about swearing and about oaths. Now for us, those mean different things. Uh, in that day, it, it meant something entirely different what it means today. The idea of swearing or taking an oath is essentially the idea of making a promise. 
And so it's by saying, you know, on my mother's grave, I swear that I never did, I never took that cookie. You know, as a kid, you say that. Of course, your mom's right there. That's kind of weird, but, uh, you know, <laughs> I swear on your grave, mom, that I did not do it. Uh, and, and, you know, you make sort of a, an oath or a promise, and people in that day would do that all of the time. They would be, uh, they, you know, man, I, I promise you this, and they would make these large, uh, very articulate uh, oaths, and they would make commitments to one another, but the fact was is that though they would make these great oaths, no one actually expected them to keep their word. And so it's sort of a shallow thing. It's like when you buy a new car, you know, and they're like, oh, it's a bumper-to-bumper warranty, you know, and then you read eight pages of fine print that define what that actually is. Like, oh, and then the commercials, you know, these awesome commercials, man, it's bumper-to-bumper, you're covered for five years, everything, but, you know, except for all of these, these little things that they add in there. So we understand what they're saying, but we know that they don't actually mean it in its entirety, and that's what he's saying. Don't be the kind of person who just says things. Don't be the kind of person who just makes promises and and puts things out there if you're not going to be a person of your word. He says that your yes should be yes and your no uh, should be no. You should be the kind of person, a Christian, uh, who means what they say and who are true to their word. And this applies in all areas of our lives. Listen, there are so many people today in our world who are not true to their word. Immediately, if I said that to you, you can immediately think of somebody like that. People in your life who have not kept their word, people who made promises to you, people who maybe said something to you and they, they either didn't show up for it or they didn't walk through with it or they didn't complete what they had told you they would do. Listen, Christians are not to be that way. Christians are to be people. And that's why he says, don't be, ma- don't, don't be making all these oaths and swearing. Don't be, don't be putting it out there. He says, you need to be very cautious about when you give your word because when you give your word, you need to keep your word. And listen, we need that today in our world, don't we? We need people who are dependable. We need people who say, I'm going to be there, they're going to be there. We need people who say, hey, I'm going to look after that, they're going to look after that. You know what it's like to have a coworker who says, oh, yeah, I got it, I got it, right? And then like a week later, like, hey, did you get it? Oh, yeah, 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 I got it, I got it. Two weeks later, did you get it? No, I got it. You know what I'm saying? And it's, it's so frustrating, isn't it? And what happens? You end up doing it, right? <laughs> you end up taking care of it. But we want to be people of our word where it actually means something. It needs to, it needs to be there uh, in the workplace. It should be there in our relationships. Listen, husbands, dads, when you make a commitment to your children, you need to keep that commitment. Now, my, my kids know that there are some ex- circumstances and situations that come into my life where maybe I'm not able to keep a commitment, but I try to make sure that I make it up to them if I cannot keep that specific commitment. But we need to be people of our word. Wives, we need to be uh, committed to our husbands. We need to be people of our word to our husbands in our relationships. And I would say this, this whole idea of your yes being yes and your no being no, parents, that is great parenting advice. Oh, come on, help me out here. It is, isn't it, right? How many times have you told your child no? No. No. And yet they keep coming back, coming back. Why is that? Why do they keep coming back asking again? Because in the past you've given in, right? (laughs) Your no actually didn't mean no. And so we need to to be Christians and people where our yes means yes and our no means no. (laughs) Good. All right. (laughs) That's what he's saying here. Be trustworthy. People who will keep a promise. We live in a generation where commitment is just so, eh, whatever. I remember a day, I'm not that old, but I, I am old enough to remember that when you used to make plans to like, see your friends, you would make a phone call. And you'd be like, hey, I'll meet you at this bus stop in Coquitlam at whatever. I took the bus a lot, and all my friends were in Coquitlam. And uh, you know, I'm going to meet you at this bus stop, and I'm going to be there at whatever. And that would be it. That'd be the only communication. 
And so guess what? If I didn't show up, guess what they thought? Something terrible has happened to Paul, you know? And then they'd have to walk from that bus stop and maybe go back to their house or they'd walk to the mall, you know, and they have to find a quarter. Some of you, that's totally foreign to you, right? They have to find a quarter and they have to take that quarter and they have to go and find a payphone. They have to put in the payphone and they have to call my house. And if I wasn't home, there's no answer. And now they really think something's wrong. And so we, I don't know, it's just sort of different the way that I grew up a little bit. Because today it seems like if, if I'm making plans to meet somebody or something's going to happen, it's like there's like 10 or 15 different text messages just to make sure, right? Are you going to be there, right? Yeah. Or it's a last second, you know, I'm already there and I get this text message. I'm not coming. I can't make it or whatever it may be. And today it's just so easy to cancel on one another and to just sort of, ah, it's not that big of a deal. Christians should be people of commitment. That's okay. It's all right to do that. And that's what he's saying here. Yet your, let your yes be yes and your no, no be trustworthy. Come through with your promises. And I'll tie it all in here in just a moment at the end of the passage. So James drops that on us. He says, hey, be this kind of person. And now he moves into these next eight verses and he takes full advantage of the space that he has left here, uh, I believe, to teach us some very important truths. And uh, we see it here in James chapter number five. And uh, verse uh, number 13 here, I'm going to try to get this thing working. Verse number 13, he says, is any of you afflicted? Is any of you afflicted? Let him pray. Is any merry? Let him sing psalms. Here's the first thing that he wants us to know when it comes to responding to life. In suffering or joy, you need to turn to God. In suffering or in joy, you need to turn to God. Look at that verse again. Is any among you afflicted? Let him pray. Is any merry? Let him sing psalms. The word afflicted here means uh, suffering uh, in many difficult circumstances and in different ways. And then he says, if you're merry, what that means is that you're a person, you're in good spirits. Things are going all right. You know, life is okay. Nothing terrible is really happening. And so what is James trying to say to us here? What James is trying to say to us here. And uh, Alexis thing is not changing for me for some reason. You want to go ahead, go to the next, uh, next slide over. I'll just let Lex take care of it. I don't know what it is. Who brought in the signal jammer today? Anybody? <laughs> go ahead to another one. Next one over. There we go. Here's what he's saying. In every circumstance, in every situation, uh, whether it is the difficulties of this life or the great joys that come our way, we are to turn in the direction of our Lord. So in suffering, in times of difficulty, Rather than seeking revenge or rather than allowing burn, uh, anger just to burn within us, we turn to God in prayer during that difficulty. When we're suffering, when things aren't going right, we turn to God. In the same way, when things are going good for us, when there's joy, rather than swelling up in pride and uh, rather than taking the credit for ourselves, we simply turn to Christ in praise and in worship for what He has done for us. Amen. Why does He say this? He says it because both prayer and praise point our hearts back to God. Both of those exercises, spiritual exercises, point us towards the one who deserves all of our praise. It takes our mind and emotions off of ourselves. It takes your, your thought processes off of your own hurt, off of your own pain, off of your own blessings, or off of your own possessions. And it puts us back in a place of dependence, of completely focusing in God. You know, personally, most of us have someone in our lives like this, don't we? I know for me, my wife is that person. Who, what kind of person? She's the person that I call first, no matter what, right? Man, if something, if something good comes along in our life and I get a phone call or I get, I get something that happens that's good for us, guess what? She's the first person I tell. I don't tell my kids first. I don't tell you guys first. I tell my wife first. She's the one I go to first. And guess what? In the same way, when something bad happens in our life, when I have a rough day, uh, when things uh, go wrong, I get hurt or whatever it is, guess who I go to first of all? My wife. <laughs> I go to her first. And I say, this is what's going on. Why is that? Because she's the one I can depend on. 
That's what God is to be to each of us individually. When good things happen, praise God. (laughs) When rough times are coming, Lord, I need your help. The idea is that our eyes are always focused upward. In Isaiah chapter 26, verse number 3, it teaches us that thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee. What does it say there at the beginning? I underlined it and bolded it. Thou. Who's that? That's God. God is the one who will keep us in perfect peace when our minds are stayed, are focused on him because we trust in him. See, God's desire for you is that you have a balanced life. Did you realize that? (laughs) He wants you to be balanced because so much of this life is up and down, isn't it? Man, have you ever had like, you're like, I mean, you are in the depths of despair one day and the next day you're like on the mountaintops. (laughs) And, And sometimes life is like that, a lot of ups and downs. But the one, uh, the one factor that sort of smooths everything out is that when you're down, you're looking to God. When you're up, you're also looking up to God. The point is that you're always looking at Him, and that brings balance to your life. Balance. That's how we can have joy and sorrow, right, as Scripture teaches us. That's how we can have humility and blessing, is by pointing and turning to God. See, true peace is found in making Christ the object of our focus, not our circumstances. You think of Peter as he got out of that boat and started to walk towards Jesus. Remember that story? And as he was walking on the water and he's just thinking, I'm walking on water. Right? That's what he, I knew that's what he was thinking in his head. I'm walking on this amazing, right? And there's Jesus out there in the water. But then it says that as he began to look at the waves, right? And began to look at all around him is when he began to sink, when he took his eyes off of Christ. And that's the thing. When you're going through a difficult time, when you start to focus only on that difficulty, when you only look at all of the problems all around you and the issues in our society and the problems everywhere in life, guess what? You're going to start to sink even lower than you originally started. But if you're keeping your eyes on Christ, if you're focusing on Him in those difficult times, you'll be able to stay where you need to be. And in the same way, it's so easy to get prideful, isn't it? To think like, well, that's the wrong slap. Here it is, the chest. There it is. <laughs> Not there. Slap up here, right? That's what, I don't want to hit my mic, so... Right? I did this myself. This is all about me. This is, you know, I figured this out. I built this, whatever it may be. Listen, to keep us from getting prideful, we need to keep our eyes on Christ as well. Because then we know, okay, you know what? I may be up here and I may think I got it all figured out, but Christ is still above me. He's still above. And so uh, James is trying to teach us. He says, in difficulties, whether they're uh, good, good things or bad things, keep your eyes on Christ. Well, secondly, we see in this passage, when you are sick, you need to ask God for prayer. So number one, he said, in suffering or joy, look to God. And then he says to us, when you're sick, ask for prayer. Look at verse 14 and 15. And really interesting passage. He says, is any sick among you? We would say, yes. (laughs) Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over them, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick and the Lord shall raise him up. Say that phrase with me and the Lord shall raise him up. And if he have committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. Now, that's a really interesting passage. And I, it's something maybe you've heard before, or maybe something you've read over, and you're like, I wonder what that means. And you just keep on moving. So here's, we're going to talk about it for a moment. When you are sick, you need to ask for prayer. Now, a characteristic of the early church was their great concern for people who had physical difficulties. You know, today we don't maybe have as much care for one another's difficulties because it's like, hey, go to the hospital, right? You know, and they'll help you out. But in in, in his day, it really wasn't that way, especially people dealing with poverty. I mean, if you didn't have something to pay a physician with, you weren't seeing a physician no matter how bad you were. 
And so it, there was a lot of care that was given through the early church, and a lot of it, uh, a lot of people talked about it as well. Of course, we know there was the sign gifts of uh, healing that were still alive and active during this, uh, during this point of church history. But here we see James, when somebody is sick, he encourages them to call for the elders of the church. That's the word uh, presbyterios. That's a word that we see throughout Scripture referencing pastors, those that are in leadership and, and teaching mature, uh, spiritually mature people who are responsible uh, for overseeing the local church. And uh, the idea is that you would call for them to come to your home. They would anoint you with oil and then they would pray over you. That was a very common thing in the early church. It, it happened very commonly. The anointing part, which was interesting, uh, which, which was an interesting aspect of it, as far as we know, and actually the literal translation of this is anointing them with olive oil. And so olive oil. So immediately some of you got excited. What oil is this? I need to find, I need to find this oil, you know? I need to find which one it is. It's olive oil, okay? And, uh, and it had some representation to it. Now, we know in other passages, you, if you remember the story of the Good Samaritan, when he, uh, when, uh, when he found the guy on the side of the road, he bound up his wounds with oil and wine. He bound him up. And, and we understand that. We understand there were some medicinal, medicinal aspects to it, a preservation, uh, protection of wounds. But most of the time in Scripture, we see the anointing of oil as a representation of the Holy Spirit of God. It's a representation of God's presence in that person's life and in that situation. And so when they would come to this person who was sick, they would come and anoint them with oil and then they would pray for them. I want you to notice a couple of things out of this passage I want to just, just focus on. First of all, I want you to notice that it is not the oil nor the elders that healed the sick. It was the Lord who raised them up. You see that there in the passage? It is the Lord that raised them up. So it's not about a method. It's not about a person. It's always about the Lord who can do the healing in a person's life. I want you to also notice that they did not call for the healer to come. They did not call for the healer. Now, this is a time transitionally for the early church. The, uh, the canon of Scripture is, is, will be completed in, in, in about another 50 years, 40 to 50 years or so. And so there would have been some that would have had that sign gift of healing still available to them. But we do not see them calling for any person like that. We see him calling simply for the leadership of the church to come and to pray for this sick person. Another thing I want us to notice uh, in this passage is that the word sick here means incapacitated. It literally means someone who cannot walk. <laughs> they cannot go to work. They cannot go uh, to the church. They cannot go and gather with their local uh, body of believers. And so they needed the leadership to come to them. In essence, what we understand is that in order for them to, be, uh, uh, to, to survive, they needed the healing, the miraculous healing of God upon their life. So this is a person in, I mean, just very, very difficult circumstances. This was not a tummy ache, right? You know, this was not a, you know, a bruised finger or a broken toe. I mean, this was a serious, serious situation uh, that was going on. And they needed someone to come and to, to, uh, to help them out. Secondly, that I want you to notice is a person who's very sick. But secondly, what I want you to see about this is that very likely this particular situation was actually more of a, of a situation of church discipline. So in context, we see in verse number 15, where it tells us the prayer of faith shall save the sick and the Lord shall raise him up. And then it says this, and if, if he have committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. 
Now, the word if in the original languages has four different applications and meanings. I will not bore you with all of them and all of the hours I spent studying them this week. But I will tell you this, this if that we see written here in this passage specifically gives us the meaning of more than likely. That's what it means, more than likely. And so what he's saying here, James is saying, is that as they come and they pray for this person, more than likely they've got some sin in their life. (laughs) And so their sins will be forgiven them as well at that time. Not because of the elders, but because of the Lord, all right? And so more than likely, there's some sin. And so that's why we get the understanding that this was possibly a church discipline situation where a church member uh, fell into some sin, fell away from the Lord. And because of that sin, the Lord allowed His chastening hand that comes alongside and brought sickness to this person. And because they were so sick, they were unable to go and make things right with the local church. And so they reached out to the congregation to come to their home and to pray with them and to make things right. And then it also says that their sickness as well would be healed from their sin. So what is the prayer of faith? Because that's the thing that interests me the most out of this. He says, well, they prayed the prayer of faith and this amazing thing happened. This person was healed. Uh, What is it? What is it? Well, it's the key to both physical and spiritual sickness. And the prayer of faith, what we understand in Scripture, is a prayer that is from the heart, it is sincere, and it is without any shred of doubt in the healing power of God Himself. If you remember back to James chapter 1, verse number 5 through 8, I want to read this to you here. He says, If any of you lack wisdom, we had this, we studied this right at the very beginning. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. But look at this. But let him ask in what? Faith. Okay, so what does it mean to ask in faith? Nothing wavering. So no, no like, eh, I hope he comes through, right? No, like maybe God will do this. No, this is a assured prayer um, that God is going to come through. And he says, for he that wavereth is like the wave of the sea, driven the wind and tossed. For let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. Talks about a double-minded man then being unstable. It's a total and a complete focused faith in Jesus Christ. And I want you to notice this as well in this passage. The, the, the faith that he is talking about here is strictly the prayer of faith that the leaders are praying. It says nothing at all about the person who is sick and needing to be healed. Now, this is an interesting thought because if you know anything about some of our so-called or out there faith healers that you see today, One of the big things that they say if they try to heal somebody and they're not healed is they say, your faith isn't big enough, right? And they put it on the person in the bed. They put it on the person with the the issue. Well, you're just not there yet. That's why you were not healed. Listen, this passage doesn't say anything about the person. It says the prayer of faith by the leadership is the one that stirs the heart of God to bring about the healing. It has nothing to do with the faith of that person there, okay? You understand what I'm trying to say? Okay, I'm just trying to pick out a few little things just to help us understand where we are uh, as a church and what we practice and believe. And so the prayer of faith is, is, is not even dependent upon the elders so much. It's not dependent on the oil. It's not dependent on the person. But it's a genuine, sincere, focused prayer that stirs the heart and the hand of God. So when you read this, does this mean then that all we got to do, anoint with oil and have genuine prayer of faith, and God will heal every issue that we got going on. Because that's what it looks like to me, right? If you just read it, I mean, and you're like, okay, yeah, great. All right, everybody line up. I got some oil, right? Okay, let's, let's talk about this, all right? Because <laughs> that's what it seems like. 
But I want to emphasize again that the prayer that is prayed is a prayer of faith. Not only is it a prayer of faith in the healing power of God, and by the way, I believe that God heals. <laughs> I believe that God heals. God heals, okay? Nothing to do with a person. It's God who heals. But not only should we have faith that God can heal, but I, but I also want you to know that this is a prayer of faith in God's will in that person's life, okay? A true prayer of faith will not only acknowledge God's power, but will it acknowledge his sovereignty in the life of that person? Because it is not always God's will that he heals the sick, is it? Do you remember the Apostle Paul in Corinthians where he said, I cried out to the Lord three times that he would remove this thorn of, flesh, uh, thorn of the flesh from me. And I cried out, would he remove it? But he did not remove it from me. Remember the story of Epaphroditus who was sick. He almost died trying to take the gospel uh, to the church in Ephesians or in Philippians. Uh, yeah, Philippians. And he, and he uh, I mean, he was in such terrible, terrible conditions. And uh, yet God, God never healed him from that. I mean, he knew the Apostle Paul, and yet he was not healed from that sickness. We see it all the way through Scripture because a prayer for healing must be qualified with a recognition that God's will is supreme above all things. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 14, it says, And this is the confidence that we have in Him, that if we ask anything according to whose will? His will. Okay? He heareth us. And if we know that He heareth whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we desired of him. See, sin may or may not bring about the cause of illness. And, and, and I want you to understand, just because it says that there was some sin involved, that every sickness is, is related to sin, that is not true. Jesus blew that out of the water in the, in, in the Gospel of John. He said, no, no, no. Because remember they said, hey, who sinned that, that this guy is blind? Do you remember that? And he's like, no, 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 no. It's, not, it's nothing to do. It's not about every sickness being sin. Or every sickness, yeah, being brought about uh, the result of sin. But the point is he's saying there are situations like that. There's times that come along uh, where uh, there's sin, and so God brings about the chastening. But the condition to us is very important, and we have to understand this because so often we are prone. It's kind of weird in our hearts. Sometimes when someone does come down with a sickness or they have a difficulty, and inside of us we're sort of like, I wonder what they did. Right? To be honest. Okay, better yet. Something happens to you and you're like, I wonder what I did, right? You ever feel that way? I got a little tickle in my throat. Man, I should have been nicer to my wife. That's a temptation that we deal with, isn't it? To try to like, again, we're trying to understand God, right? So we're like trying to connect all these things, you know, like, oh, my son, he fell, he broke his arm. Oh man, I, oh, I shouldn't have had that wrong thought, <laughs> you know? And we try to connect all of these things. Listen, that's not wise for us to do. It's not wise for us to do. This guy may have had sin, he may not have had sin, but either way, it's proper to pray for healing. It's the big point out of this. The big point out of this. There's a lot here in this passage. But the big point is that regardless, we should pray. And I'm not against even the idea of anointing with oil and having a focused prayer time. I think that's a great thing to do. It doesn't happen very often. Uh, I've experienced it only a few times in my own life. But it is something that the Lord gives to us. But the idea that I want us to get out of here is simply this. God can heal. Amen. And he heals and our prayers can stir the heart of God. And, uh, and we, need to pursue, uh, we need to pursue that aspect and praying. And so when you're sick, ask for prayer. I'd say this as your pastor. If you're in the hospital, please let me know about it. I've told the story before about someone in my dad's church. And uh, the lady came to church on a Sunday morning. And they're like, oh, where's your husband? Oh, he died. What? <laughs> you know? Oh, yeah, he's been sick and he died. He should never told anyone. In fact, they'd had the funeral already. 
And her pastor wasn't even there, was not there to comfort her, was not there to be there for her, was not there to help her out at all. She's like, ah, you know, how? <laughs> so I guess what I'm trying to say is, is that if you really, you know, if you're sick, you got some issues, let me know. I'd love to come and pray with you and be there for you. That's sort of a side note to the things, okay? I always find out on Sunday morning, like, oh, yeah, I was in the hospital for four days, you know? Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I would have loved it. <laughs> I guess you turned out okay. Great. All right. No, I would have loved to be there and to be there, uh, be a blessing for you. All right. Well, God can and he does heal. And in his wisdom, though, sometimes he doesn't. So the point is, we need to pray, pray the prayer of faith, but still go to him for that. We don't just say, well, if it's God's will, you know, maybe he'll come through it. No, we need to still stir the heart of God. Okay, when you're sick, you need to ask for prayer. And then thirdly in our passage, if you've wronged somebody, you need to ask for forgiveness. Number three, if you've wronged someone, ask forgiveness. Look at verse number 16. This, again, to me, is another connection as to maybe why this is a church discipline issue with this person. Uh, there was a, some sin issues related. He then goes into confess your faults one to another. Now, the word fault seems kind of light, like, oh, you know, it's not that big. This just means sin, okay? So these are offenses against one another. And pray for one another that ye may be healed. I love that. Right there is a whole message, confessing and praying for one another. Then he says, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. So James tells us when you have sinned, you need to confess your sin to one another and pray for one another. Now, sometimes people take this uh, out of context and they feel that their job is to tell everyone about every little sin issue in their, in their life and every, uh, every big thing and just sort of, I'm just going to oh, oh, you know, load everything out and you just need to just take it all in. I'm going to tell you how terrible I am. Guess what? We are all wretched, depraved sinners. I think we all understand that about each other. Uh, a good practice to follow um, uh, oftentimes is that if it's a private sin, um, it's an internal sin, a sin of lust, difficult, you need to privately take care of it with the Lord. If it's a sin that affects another person, you need to go to that other person and deal with it. If it's a public sin, it needs to be dealt with publicly within the church. Now, sometimes private sins become public sins. You guys realize that, right? But if it's a public thing, it really is open, then, and you're trying to get right and repent, you need to make, make it right with the church. That's a good practice to follow but in this situation, he's talking specifically about uh, offenses that are towards one another within the church. And so you need to go to that person and you need to confess to them what had happened. We need to confess. You say, well, when does this really apply? Well, you need to confess to someone when your sin or your wrong or your injustice, uh, which is sin, is done against somebody else and you know it. And we know when we're insensitive, don't we? We know when we're unkind. We know when maybe we say something or act in a way that's vengeful or a way that's trying to maybe push our own agenda or whatever it may be. And we know that someone's going to maybe be hurt along the way. Maybe you have someone in your life who said, I don't care if it hurts everybody, I'm just going to do it anyway, right? Maybe you have someone in your life, you're like, whoa, okay, don't ever cross, I'm never going to cross that person, right? Listen, at the heart of the Christian should never be that way. We should always consider one another in our uh, dealings and the way that we act. We need to go to someone when we've, when we've misled them or when we've lied to them when we've offended somebody, or when we've caused somebody to stumble in sin. Church, we need to be aware of our actions causing somebody else to sin. Maybe the sin of anger, or sin of lust, or sin of uh, um, uh, 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 hurt feelings, or whatever it may be. We need to be aware of the way that we live our lives. I would, have, I would take that all the way to social media as well. We need to be careful about the things that we repost and post and do so that we do not bring offense to our brothers and sisters in Christ. You say, oh, I don't think it was that big of a deal. Okay, it may not be that big of a deal to you, but we need to be aware. We need to consider one another and provoke to good works, right? And not difficulty. When there's obviously some sort of crime that we have committed, even publicly things need to be made right when there's restitution. 
When we need help, when there's uh, maybe a situation that we need uh, a Christian counselor or a pastor, somebody to help us work through a situation, then we need to uh, be willing to confess and, and talk about what's going on as well. So we need to be people who are um, being sensitive and in the habit of sensitive to one another and willing to confess in areas that we have been wrong. You say, why is this a big deal? Well, first of all, he tells, tells us there in the verse, we're to be praying with one another. It's kind of hard to pray with one another when there's sin between us or difficulties. As well, it says that the effectual, uh, fervent prayer of a righteous man or woman, a righteous person, makes a difference. And I want my prayers to make a difference. Psalm 66, verse number 18 tells us, If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. Iniquity is sin. David said, if we've got sin in our hearts and we've got issues in, in our life, then God's not going to hear. And Peter, it talks about how if a husband and a wife, uh, if a husband's not treating his wife in the, in, in the correct way, his prayers will be hindered as well. And so we need to be people who are not hindering our prayers with sin and with iniquity uh, in our lives. We need to get things right. Our most powerful resource is communication with God through prayer, isn't it? We've learned it is the instrument of healing. It's the instrument of forgiveness. And it's a mighty weapon when it comes to the spiritual warfare that we are in. The results sometimes of prayer are more than we could ever imagine. And unfortunately, we often use prayer as a last resort. Like, I'm in the depths of despair. Now we go to God in prayer. He's saying, no, keep your, your accounts right with God. It, getting right with one another and praying together. And then we see God do great things with our prayers. And he gives us an example of that in verse number 17. Verse number 17, there's sort of these two verses that are interesting, talking about prayer. He says, Elias, that's the New Testament rendering of Elijah, was a man subject to like passions as we are. And he prayed earnestly that it might not rain. And it rained not on the earth by the space of three years and six months. Wow. And he prayed again. And the heaven gave rain and the earth brought forth her fruit. Now this is based off of 1 Kings uh, chapter number 17 and 18. Uh, the story of Elijah, and we actually covered it in our uh, series through Elijah near the beginning of 2019. And uh, Elijah, though, here is given to us as an example of somebody uh, who really had the power of prayer. And one of my favorite parts of this verse is how it says that Elijah was a man subject to like passions as we are, meaning he was a, a man just like us. He was human just like us, and yet he prayed and it did not rain for three years and six months. Crazy, right? And then he prayed again, and the rain came back again. What, what are we trying to say? Because you're not Elijah, and I'm not Elijah. We recognize that. But guess what? He was just like us. Just like us. And guess what? When he prayed, he prayed to the same God that we pray to today. And so he says, the, your, the prayers of a righteous person make a big difference, but we've got to be right with one another. We've got to be right with God. We can't have anything hindering our prayers. And then he gives us this incredible example of what it looks like to be the kind of person who is completely right with God and calling on God's power in, in, in your life. Now think about that for a moment. He says, Elijah, look at the amazing things that happened when God heard and answered his prayer. He was a man just like us. So James says here in verse uh, 15 and 16, 17 and 18. When you've wronged someone, you need to ask for forgiveness. Why? To keep our accounts right with the Lord. And then he closes with this. When someone has strayed, seek after them. Point number four, when someone has strayed, you need to seek after that person. Look at verse 19 and 20. He says, Brethren, if any of you do err from the truth and one convert him, let him know. That's the person who helped convert and change that person, let him know that he which converted the sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death 
and shall hide a multitude of sins. Now, the primary focus here in this verse is not the subject of evangelism. That's maybe uh, one take that you could see. Of course, there's scriptural principles here of going out and, and helping others. But the main focus of this passage is the subject of restoration for a believer who has strayed, who has wandered away from the faith. See, the goal of the church, the goal of this individual that he's talking about here is that we would see the person who had strayed to be converted. That means uh, to be brought back into the faith, brought back into the church, and to see those wrongs corrected and to see their faith get back to where it needed to be. And so what we can see in this passage is that not only is there, uh, is there a desire to see a straying person, a person who's gone away from the faith, to come back to the faith, but what we see in here as well is a push to action. Notice how he says you go. You go after that person. You go and you reach out to that person. The unfortunate truth is that uh, like sheep do sometimes, Christians wander away, don't they? They maybe get disillusioned about their faith or disillusioned about the church or uh, often they may have fallen into sin or uh, surrounded themselves with unbelievers and so we slowly see them begin to move away from the faith. But regardless of the reason that a person uh, may be taken away from the faith, there's a responsibility to the local church to reach out to them, specifically the individuals in the church, to try to bring them to a place of restoration and repentance, of getting things right. It's talking about a community where uh, people care deeply about each other and wanderers are not allowed to just slip through the cracks. And how sad is it sometimes when we're like, where is that person? I haven't seen them in three, four, five months. What happened? We don't know. Even in a church our size, it's possible for things just to happen and people just to slip away. The question is, is are we willing to try to bring someone back who has wandered? Or do we simply, you know, sort of proverbial wring our hands? <laughs> as they just continue to go farther and farther away. See, the context here is, is a little unclear as to the identity. It doesn't tell us, okay, it was a, a Christian who's just fallen into sin, or, or, maybe, that it's a, um, or maybe that it's somebody uh, uh, who never truly believed, and so they wandered away. And, and of course, we believe in the security of the believer, but we all have to agree that there are some who just simply fall away from the faith. Those who maybe are not genuine in their profession, and as Christians, the point is so clear here in this verse that we are to go and try to bring the wanderer back, not debate whether or not the person would be lost if we didn't bring them back. Does that make sense? Sometimes people say like, ah, they must not have been a believer anyway. Nah, off they go. No, we need to pursue them. We need to reach out to them. Amen. Now, to me, this is where verse number 12 uh, sort of comes into play. Here's why. If we are not people of our word if we ourselves do not have a consistent testimony for the Lord, it will make it that much more difficult to win back a straying brother or sister for the Lord. You see this quote that I have here on the screen. See, your current testimony can affect your, effective, uh, affect your effectiveness in restoration. This verse is about restoration, and here's the idea I wanted to get. Your current testimony right now, whether you are a trustworthy, truthful person, will determine whether or not you may be able to reach someone who is straying away from God in the future. Now, we, we understand this in a financial sense, right? You ever have somebody tell you what you do in your 20s and 30s will determine whether you do or, and how you will retire, right? <laughs> the financial decisions you make when you're young, I said it kind of in a long way, but you know what I mean. The decisions you make now, uh, uh, you know, as a young person will affect the, the, your retirement in the, in the distance and in, in the future in the same way the testimony that you are building now the depth of your Christian walk, the maturity of your faith that you are developing could be the difference in restoration or the further pushing away of somebody who's fallen away into sin. 
or fallen away from the church. You know, oftentimes when someone uh, steps away or walks away from a local church, there's typically there's a relationship issue, there's uh, the sins of anger, there's uh, unrealistic expectations, there's just uh, maybe a, 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 a layer of sin that's just never been dealt with or taken care of. And, and when that happens, that should not be the end for that relationship between a church and a person. You understand? Man, I, I was in a, in a church for a long time. Uh, it, when I first started out in ministry, and the, uh, the, the idea of the church was basically if you hurt us as a church or you uh, walk away from us, like, we're done. See ya. And that was the attitude. And it was very evident in the way that the leadership handled some things. And uh, listen, I don't want that to ever be our church family. Amen. You know? And sometimes people walk away, and there's many different reasons, but there should still be that hope of restoration. There should be that pursuit of restoration. Now, guess what? More than likely, when a person leaves because of sin and you reach out to them, they're like, forget you guys. Like, there's not really uh, any desire on their part, but there should always be a hope of restoration. Because that's true biblical uh, church family is restoration. You see this, this, this restoration come about. And so uh, we have to be uh, willing to go after those. Sometimes, you know, you may not see someone in church for a while. You should reach out to them. Say, hey, how are you doing? What's going on? You know, can we, can we get together with pastor? Can we uh, work some things through? Whatever it may be. Now, that I understand there's doctrinal issues and, and all of that. And, and um, uh, uh, we're not going to change our doctrine. You know what I mean? We're going to stay true to who we are. Um, but sometimes there are things that simply just need to be worked through, uh, that need to be uh, uh, gone through in a spiritual and humble way, uh, just to work things out. But regardless of, of really what's going on, we have a responsibility, he says, to reach out. To those people. Because if you do, man, a wonderful thing takes place. Amen. Incredible things take place. So these are James' final words to the scattered believers from Jerusalem, and they're his final words to us today as well. You know, the book began with an appeal to endure hardships with joy. You remember that? That's how he started things out. Endure hardship with joy, and then he ends it with an appeal to look out for one another, to reach out to each other in difficulty and sickness, to encourage one another to pray and to praise and to keep our relationships in such a way that our prayers would not be hindered. And to me, that is the, the overriding heart of this book of James. The heart of James as he wrote this, a book that is so strong in its commands and almost harsh in some ways. But at the heart of it all, its purpose is for us to learn to live and to serve in harmony, to face life's challenges, to accept uh, what God has given to us, and live a life of restoration, repentance, and peace. And most of all, above all else, he encourages us to be doers of the word and not just hearers only. And that's what today's passage really is all about. This is actually being a doer of the word of God, pursuing what God has called us to do. So let's not be deceived, first of all. The Christian life takes work. I think you realize that. It takes a lot of work. The Christian life is not easy. But when Jesus is our focus, and we have one another to encourage and support, we can endure the difficulties of life by God's grace. We hope today's message was an encouragement in your relationship with Christ. To stay connected with us, you can like us on Facebook or give us a follow on Instagram at Baptist. Our prayer is that God will be uniquely blessed and grow you